Hello, and welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. This is Sarah. Join us for bookish episodes and a monthly book club pick. This is Ashley. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod, or go to our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. This is Jen. Check out our Teachers Pay Teachers store, our Patreon page, and our newsletter. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to support us. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hi, and welcome to Unabridged. This is episode 146. This is our There, There book club. We'll be discussing Tommy Orange's There, There. Before we get started today, we wanted to remind you that we are on Patreon every month and that we're sharing a lot of content on there. We have um, book to film adaptations and we also are book to screen adaptations. And we also have unabridged off topic where we talk about things that are different. We additionally have videos that we share on there. So in addition to the audio content that drops into your podcast feed, we have some videos that are available to you. So be sure to check that out if you haven't yet. And that's just at patreon.com slash unabridged pod. All right, we are going to dig into the book here in a minute, but before we get started with our book club discussion, we want to share our bookish check-in. So Sarah, what are you reading? My book has a curse word in the title, um, (laughs) and it it is Lindy West's S-word, actually, and it is a, it's basically uh, a nonfiction book about her experience viewing some of the most popular movies over the last, you know, 20 to 30 years. And each chapter is a different movie. And she starts off the book by, by talking about what she thinks is the perfect movie, which is the fugitive with Harrison Ford. And so then each subsequent movie is rated one to 10 DVDs of the fugitive. So that's the rating (laughs) scale. And I'm telling you, I'm enjoying it so much. She is hilarious. I'm listening to it on audio and she narrates it and it is just so funny. And she is just, I mean, she has all the side eye, which I really like that. And she, um, she doesn't hold anything back. And I like that. And it's just, it's been a really awesome read for this moment in time in my life. And I really, really like it. And she also like, I've, I've watched nearly all the movies she has put on there. And I will say (laughs) that she discusses Love Actually, the movie that is not a Christmas movie. And um, (laughs) (laughs) that was a date from Sarah Christmas movies. (laughs) (laughs) No, but she, uh, she discusses Love Actually, which is where the book gets its title from. And, and I guess you can, you know, connect the dots and know how she (laughs) that movie and I felt very vindicated (laughs) listening to that chapter and I definitely wanted to call out both Jen (laughs) and my sister who loves that movie and told me to watch it at Christmas time and it was really sad (laughs) and I did not like that at all so I just wanted to say that I'm thoroughly enjoying this book (laughs) and that is Lindy West's S word actually but it's though it's actually the word, not S word. <laughs> like anyone wondered? We don't want our explicit rating. rating on our podcast, or you know, I don't know if that constitutes an explicit rating. I, I debated that too. I was like, do we have to mark it if we say that one? I'm not sure, but 
Yes, for podcast listeners, first of all, Jen and Sarah had a rather heated debate about what constitutes a holiday movie that we will link in our show notes. And so that was what Sarah was not subtly (laughs) referencing there. And, And also, we... As a podcast, we have to mark things with an E for explicit. And so we have been learning to navigate that as well. So that's why Sarah is very carefully bleeping out part of the title there. So um, that sounds great, Sarah. I love Wendy West. So I I may have to. I mean, I think even if you, it's just her commentary on the pop cultural aspects and just like, I mean, just how the movies that, you know, you have this nostalgia for don't hold up and that there there's all this misogyny and especially the way women you know she really I mean she's a fem- she's a proclaimed mm-hmm. feminist and she is kind of working through that in the book about like what these movies that were beloved early in life like what the one that I just listened to recently she talks about reality bites and I mean and how like you love this movie, but you watch it back as this grown person. And you're like, these people are the worst. And like, <laughs> Troy is the worst. And I remember my sister and I loving that movie. So it's just, yeah. there's a lot of nostalgia, which I love, but there's also a lot of really good commentary on, on pop culture and just the depiction of people of color and women and black people and all, you know, it's just a really good commentary on pop culture. And I think she's hilarious. So I really like it. I really enjoyed it too. I was like, it's amazing. It's amazing that I can still enjoy it, even though she is absolutely trashing some movies that I love. And I think I still love them. But also everything she says is right. <laughs> so. well, I mean, it's really funny because some of the time she's talking about these movies and she's pretty much trashing them. And then they're and she, and the, at the end, she's like, but I love it. And it's eight out of 10 DVDs of The Fugitive or whatever. So, I mean, you think, so she is admittedly like not loving what these movies have in them, but she also still loves them as a thing from her past yeah mm-hmm. yeah that sounds great and that one that is on libro mm-hmm. fm for the mm-hmm. alc program for september and i had not been in there until until the, we're, we're recording this a little bit in advance of our october book club and i hadn't been in there but it's you know we're well into september now and i mean they have some great stuff in there mm-hmm. this month so when i got in there i was so excited to see some of the choices there but i did not download that one yet so i may go back and and do that one as well because I, I do love her and I wasn't sure because of the pop culture part but I also think it's what you were saying Sarah about her voice and the way the command of language and just how much fun it is to I think she is so clever at being able to both examine the thing and also embrace her emotions about the thing and I think that's really awesome so yeah cool Jen what about you what are you reading so I'm reading an e-galley from NetGalley this one comes out October 6th and This one is by Julie C. Dow, and it is Broken Wish. So it's the first in a planned quadrology, and other authors are going to take up the next three books. So it's going to be, so Dow is writing the book one, and then it's Danielle Clayton, Jennifer Cervantes, and L.L. McKinney. And these are about witches and witchcraft and a family with a curse, and it studies the family over four generations. So in this first book, 
like the Grimm's are characters in the book, so it's sort of secondary characters. So there's this fairy tale feel and it opens with this couple in a cottage in Germany in the 1800s who desperately want a child but can't have one. And the wife befriends the woman on the hill who everyone in the village thinks is a witch and she doesn't believe she is. But then the woman gives her this tonic so that she can have a baby and she just has to promise that she will continue to go to her house for a snack and like maintain their friendship. And her husband who has some issues with being an outcast does not want her to do that. So she breaks her promise, thus bringing on the curse. So it's, it's great. It's YA. It is very readable. I'm maybe a quarter of the way in and I'm just really wrapped up in it. So it starts with a couple and then now their daughter Elva is 16 and she is the focus of the plot and it's really fun. So we'll see where it goes, but I love a fairy tale retelling and this one's just inspired by all of these fairy tales sort of wrapped into one. So I really like it. That sounds great. And man, what a great lineup of authors. Yes. That's awesome. That, that was one of the things that really swayed me because I've been yeah. wanting to read Dow. And I haven't, I have some of her books on my list, but some of the others I just love. I love books about witches too. Mm -hmm. I just think I always. Yeah, I like both those, the the fairy tale retellings and also witchcraft. So that's great, man. Yeah. Ashley, what are you reading? So the one that I am going to share, I I was torn. I listed two things on my doc, on the doc, because um, the one that I want to share is actually a horror book and I posted it on Instagram. And then it's funny because you say things like I, I posted just to say how I'm loving this book, but it's really outside of my genre. And that's true. And then a lot of people replied and were like, oh, I'm definitely going to check that one out. And maybe they were just, you know, commenting as commenters do. But <laughs> I also felt like I needed to say, I wish I had said in my post, it is really disturbing. I mean, there are mm. parts that are really disturbing. So then I hesitated to share it, but I really am loving it. So it's Stephen Graham Jones. And I'm listening to the audio and the title is The Only Good Indians. And he is just a phenomenal storyteller. But like I said, the genre is horror. And I did not know that when I started it. I just had seen posts about it and I was reading there, there and loving it. And so I was really interested in more books that talked about native culture. And so that was why I started it. And then as I got into it, there's this really great sort of mythology that's happening. And there's this revenge narrative and all of that stuff is going on for the character. And then things got more and more, you know, events (laughs) happened. And somewhere along the way, I saw it, I saw it on Goodreads or something with the, the, the genre right, you know, next to it. And I mean, it is not like, there are parts that are disturbing. So there was a scene that is really vivid to me. But I think what is so and I mean, I am still all here for the story. I mean, it just because I think what's so interesting is it's looking at the examination of culture and traditions and what happens when we kind of break from those traditions. And so there is this like revenge thriller narrative part, but then there's also this just really interesting examination of people and like what makes up a person and how they understand their identity and how that connects. And then part of the revenge stuff, you know, you're also, it's also like a psychological thing where the character that you're following 
you're wondering about the credibility of what the character is sharing. And so I'm always interested in that as well. So again, I mean, I am loving it, but I did worry after I shared my post, I wanted to go back and edit and be like, please know that, you know, it has that genre for a reason. And even though I think it is not a story that is just gory for the sake of gore, there are a few scenes that are disturbing. And I think that's part of what makes the book resonate so much. So again, that's Stephen Graham Jones's the only good Indians. And I'm listening to that one on Libro FM and the narration is great. I really want to read that one. I have that one waiting on myself as well. And I've liked his, or I read his book, Mongrels, which is a modern werewolf story. And it was excellent. I think he's very talented. That's what I would read more by him for sure, because I just think he's such a great storyteller. I mean, his narration is really great. And just like that examination of the internal parts of a character, I think is really rich. So, I mean, yeah, I'm really enjoying it, but it is definitely well outside my normal genre range. So it's been interesting to dip into that. But Okay, so we are going to... <laughs> We're on video here, and I could tell both of them were like, what's Ashley going to do next? Um, <laughs> so we're going to dive into a discussion of Tommy Orange's There, There, and uh, my co-host just kindly <laughs> helped me realize that I did not write a summary, so I'm just going to share what it is about. So this is a fascinating examination of a lot of different characters who are moving toward a central event, and you're seeing a lot of them, their perspectives, each chapter is named by the person. And so you're getting to dip into a lot of different characters' lives, but all of them are moving toward this, this powwow at a coliseum. And so even though you find out a lot of back history about a lot of different characters, there it's all kind of moving in the direction of this event that they all attend in various ways. And so it's a fascinating story because as you're reading, you're becoming more aware of the connection between the different characters. And we're going to dive into that. So there will definitely be some spoilers as we talk because some of the things we find out about the characters are big revelations about how they relate to each other as you're reading. But I mean, I, I think, yeah, <laughs> that might be a, sort of all over the place summary, but ladies, would y'all say that's basically... I think that was pretty good. Yeah. All right. I thought so too. Okay. So we always start with our overall impressions. So Jen, what was an overall impression for you? I really love this book. So this was my second time through. I read it shortly after it came out about two years ago and was just blown away. I think the writing is phenomenal and I think Tommy Orange's ability to navigate all of these different perspectives and to just show the breadth of the definition of what it means to be, he even lists all of these terms, what it means to be a native or an Indian or a, there's one chapter where he lists all of the things that people call themselves, but just the variety within that label and yet the things that they share, that they have in common, the story and sense of story that connects them, I think is phenomenal. I just, I love that. I think it fits so well into the tradition of Native American literature, which is what my class in college was called. So I still hang on that, even though I'm not sure that's the right term. I feel like terms are really slippery. And so I will just say, we're going to try to use the right terms. Just know that we're making an effort but if we slip up, we're sorry. Yeah, I just think it, it fits so well within that tradition and is sort of in conversation with all of this other literature and all of these other stories. I think it's just beautiful. I really love it. 
Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, I agree with what Jen said. Uh, I did not know a ton about it going in and I just knew that it had been acclaimed and I know that knew that it won awards and that, and I knew, and I'm really interested in native culture and reading about it and I enjoy learning about it. So I was excited to read it. it. I have to say it wasn't what I was expecting, but I thought the way that he told the story and the way that he was able to weave the thread that connects all the characters together in this huge culminating event was remarkable. I mean, the storytelling and the writing is just beautiful. The ending for me was really just really hard. I... I wasn't expecting the end to end that way, even though there is there are things that are happening throughout that, you know, something, this sense of dread is happening, but I did not realize it was going to be quite so big. And that for me was really difficult. And it's difficult for me to read a book right now where we are, where I am in my own my own mental health to read a book that is just, I mean, it was quite dark. I didn't feel like there was a lot of hope at the end. And that was, that was difficult for me, but I'm really glad I read it. I probably wouldn't read it again just because I thought it was really difficult. And I just thought, I mean, I just really felt for the characters and I felt like even though there were not a lot of pages devoted to each character, I felt like you knew them very well and you knew, and I think it's because he was able to knit them all together and have that thread that they all had in common. And so I thought the end was tough for me. Yeah. What about you, Ashley? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I really loved this. I was blown away by the intricacies of the connections between the characters and the way that we could see so much about their individual lives and also the way they connected to each other. And so that part to me was really amazing. And I also found the fact that I thought that Tommy Orange did such a great job of examining the systemic problems that connected to personal lives and the way those played out. And so I really appreciated that because I think he addressed things like alcoholism in a really deep and meaningful way that showed exactly how people get into that situation and why it is a, not just an individual problem, but also a cultural problem. I felt like he explored that in such a really rich and powerful way. But I mean, I'm with you, Sarah, about the end. I think it was consistent with the grittiness of the book, mm-hmm. the way that everything came together. But it isn't, you know, we want we want things to get better for the people in the story because we love them and we are with them for the journey. Even the even the people who do we're gonna get into spoilers here, folks. Like I said, I think it's hard to talk about a book like this to even the summary, it's hard to, you know. So I mean, even the people who perpetrate the violence, even those boys we feel for, I think, and each of them personally and also them as a group. And I think that is really hard to do. So like, you know, when you have a mass shooting situation and you feel for the shooters, I just feel like that's masterful. And I think he does that really effectively. And again, I think he ties the entire act, even the violence and the fact that they needed the cash money. I mean, all of that stuff, he ties all of that back to these systemic problems that exist for the native population in America because of the oppression that they have faced for hundreds of years. 
I think that's mastery. I mean, I just feel like that is masterful for a writer to be able to do that. And so, yeah, I was really blown away. And I mean, like you said, Sarah, I had heard great things about it. And it's not that I didn't think it would be good, but I don't think I was expecting the level of skill, both with the depiction of each individual character, but also at that, that intersection of the cultural things and the commentary on culture and then connecting that to this this very masterfully done storyline. I think it's hard to do both well, to mm-hmm. analyze these philosophical things, but also tell a really compelling story and have it all weave together. And I think he does both those things really well, that the plot yeah. really meshes and also it's this really um, in-depth analysis of character. Okay, yeah. so I feel like we might have touched on this some, but are there any things you want to add as far as what worked for you in this book? The first time through, I was very focused on those threads, on how does this character relate to this character? And I think that is brilliant. But the second time through, what caught my attention were those those chapters. One's called an interlude. I can't remember if they're all mm-hmm. named. That are these moments where he sort of sort of steps out the the narrator, which I'm I'm assuming is Tommy Orange, but anyway, the speaker steps outside of the narrative and just is offering this, this commentary on society, on on mass shootings, on powwows and what they mean, on the terms that these people call themselves, what each each individual chooses to call him or herself, what what it means to have this as part of your history and then whether you know about it or not. And I was just, I I mean, I was highlighting like entire pages in my ebook because I just thought his articulation, I mean, Ashley, you were talking about this too, like these systemic problems, his articulation of those was so clear. And so I, I just don't know how anyone could read it and not be completely convinced because he explains it so clearly. I just, that just really worked for me this time. So all the things that worked for me the first time were still there and I still admired them, but they, for me, faded into the background a little bit in favor of these other moments that really stood out to me on a reread. I want to reiterate what you said, Ashley, about like, this is a really compelling story. I mean, it's, it's like this deep character study, but also this really compelling story. And there is this buildup of tension, like narrative tension that is leading to the powwow. And then the way that he chops up the chapters at the end and it's switching from character to character. So you see everybody's perspective. I mean, I thought that was brilliant. Some of his narrative choices, I just thought were so interesting. Like the Thomas Frank chapter that's told all in second person. I mean, I just thought, I mean, I could see like if I were teaching high school, some really excellent passages that you could use and talk about narrative choice and like why he does what he does throughout. So, I mean, I think, like I said, I think it is brilliant. I think that Tommy or I would read another book by him in a second. I think his writing is just a masterpiece. So Mm -hmm. I just, I mean, I just wanted to reiterate some of that, but like the narrative choices were really interesting to me. And as an English teacher, I'm always, that's always in the back of my mind when I'm reading and the way that he hops in timelines, like Mm -hmm. from to past to present to past, I think. And I will say a couple of times I was like, wait a minute, like I had to like reorient myself into like what, where we were in time, because sometimes I, I needed to think through the fact that we were not in the present, but it was just really, 
like a master class and like what you can do in a narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll be shocked if this isn't anthologized because I think so many of the, of course there's that narrative build over the whole thing, but I also think that individual chapters could stand on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. I mean, that's what I'll get into that with pairings, but I, it really reminded me of books I've read that are, a series of short stories that fit together into a narrative thread. There's a lot of that here, even though it reads as a novel, but yeah, mm-hmm. I agree about the standalone components. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to echo what you said, Jen, that I loved just even from the prologue and when he talks about the Indian head, for example, and then comes back to that with the characters. I just think like those kinds of things are really insightful. And it just it's those little moments. Like I was looking back at the part where Opal is talking and she sees the man down the street with the dog. And she talks about the cycle of abuse and how yeah. like the she sees the dog flinch. So the, it's on 170 that is, she says, the dog flinches at the sound of its name coming out of this man's mouth. It cowers and turns around and then scurries off toward the voice. The poor dog was probably just trying to spread the weight of its own abuse. There was no mistaking that flinch. And so it's that idea that like, you know, because right before the dog had been really violent and it's just that idea that I think he does that so masterfully. There's a ton of symbolism that I think is really powerful throughout the book and not too heavy handed to be, to feel overt, but is, you know, consistent enough, powerful enough to really get the reader's attention. And then those small moments like that, like her insight about seeing the dog and knowing that it is within this cycle of abuse. I think like that stuff is just really rich and hard to do when you're moving from character to character to character. Mm -hmm. And yet he manages to do it, which I think is really amazing. Okay. We are, we normally talk also about what didn't work for us. So do you have some thoughts about that? Um, Sarah, (laughs) I haven't been doing a good job of rotating. Sarah, do you want to start us off this time? I think you shared a little bit about the ending. I don't know if that's... Yeah, I mean, I I really wouldn't say... It wasn't that I thought that the ending didn't work. I just thought that it was really difficult for me to read. And the only other thing is, and again, this is not a criticism of his work. It's not that it didn't work for me, but at times, like with the timeline, I had to really hone in on what what timeline we were in because uh because there's not a clear indication of when we're going like it's not in chapters you know when we're going back in time and then in present so a couple of times in certain chapters that was a little disorienting for me but it that's probably me as a reader it has nothing to do with Tommy Orange or his work but but that I mean but those are not things that didn't work they're just things that made me have to work to be a better reader. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. what, there were times where I wanted a map of the characters. Like I took Mm. copious notes knowing that we were going to discuss, but if I hadn't done that, it took a long time to see some of those threads, but it's exactly what I said in the summary that if you had known those things at the beginning, they wouldn't have had the impact they did when the revelation came. So I know why it's not there, but sometimes it was hard. Same as you were saying about the timeline that like it was hard to trace that. Sometimes between the people, it took a long time sometimes for me to sort out how they connected. Mm-hmm. Jen, what about you? Was there something that you didn't, um, didn't work for you? I don't want to say it didn't work. I will say, again, on the reread, some of the threads and the connections felt a little pat, felt a little forced, 
I don't, I don't know. There was just something about them that on the reread, I thought, I don't know that every single connection had to be there. There were a couple that it didn't add to the story. It didn't affect a character. So, and I'm a sucker for that. So the first time through those zings of recognition, I was like, Ooh, I saw another one. The second time through, I didn't feel like I needed that as much. And so a couple of them, I was like, okay, we get it. Like you're really brilliant. You plotted it out. It's really smart. And so again, that's not a criticism. And I think I wouldn't have ever thought that if I'd only read it once, but because I reread it, I always read differently the second time through. And so that was just, my reaction was different this time. How about you, Ashley? Yeah. I I mean, I'm having trouble thinking of something specific. I struggled with the end as well. And felt both like it was perfect and also like I didn't want it to be that way. And I think Uh that's intentional. And so I can't say that it didn't work because I felt like that is that that was that was the intended feeling that the reader should have. But I did feel that way, that it was Mm -hmm. both perfect, perfect in its ambiguity, perfect in its somewhat desperate hopefulness and also not satisfying because you yeah. want things to be better for them and you want everything to work out and you don't know the concrete reality for these characters that again, like I said before, that you really care for. So, I mean, I think that's probably what I spent the most time reflecting on was mm-hmm. how all of that worked out for them. But, and wanting to prevent any one of the things that led to the moment where they got there. Yeah. Also like wanting the, wanting the shooters to be successful. I mean, you know, I think like you want that kind of heist situation to just play out. Okay. And for them Mm -hmm. to get the money. And then when they turn on each other Mm -hmm. that, you know, I did not anticipate that. I thought it was, I think he did a good job foreshadowing it. I feel like there is some really nice stuff packed in there. And that moment of tension, I thought was strangely like where Octavio says something and it's clear that he really burned. I can't remember if it was Carlos. I can't remember if it was Charles or Carlos, but I thought when I was reading it, I was like, man, that's kind of a, like it's that moment stood out and then was so intentional because well, you see the that fact play that out. He called them Charlos. Like they, he didn't even yeah. acknowledge them as two different <laughs> yeah. people. And did it to shut them down, you know, yeah. every time and to keep them in their place. And so I felt like, like I said, I felt like it was well foreshadowed that it was coming, but I didn't anticipate it because I didn't you think well that. of the people, even the ones who are making those choices you think well of them and you know as the reader you know why they're making the choices they're making and so Mm -hmm. all of that I just really I think I had to work through those things so I wouldn't say it didn't work for me because like I said I think that's the that's the anticipated or the desired effect on the reader but it is something you have to grapple with I think yeah I mean I think that is what is so masterful about the book and you touched on that before Ashley too is just knowing the the shooters and knowing like their backstory, yeah. it kind of reminded me of like Khalil and Devante and the hate you give, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, especially Devante, because you know that he has made, he is doing something that could get him in trouble and that he is answering to these people who make bad choices. But you also see why he's doing that thing yeah. and that that and it, why it feels like it's on his only choice. And that's how I felt, especially like 
well, it's Carlos and Charles, not as much, but like with Calvin and Tony and Octavio, even they are victims of a systemic situation that has occurred since they were very little and all the things that they've witnessed and all of the death that has surrounded them. I mean, it is just, it's heartbreaking. And yeah, like, I mean, you're, you're just rooting that they will just either not go through with it or that they'll just get the just get the safe and they'll get out of there without having hurt themselves or anybody else and so i mean i think that is that's great storytelling and i mean Mm -hmm. i think yeah i just yeah yeah i mean and even daniel like the whole part with octavio and daniel i thought was really really rich and how he finds this way he loses his brother he's trying to get the money he finds this way to make these guns and yet in some ways he's just this kid who has this amazing fascination that's really cool with doing all this coding and I mean I just thought like all of that was so richly drawn and uh, in Octavia's situation and how Mm -hmm. horrific his life circumstances were yeah so I just I felt like all of that was just yeah it, I mean, Tony's really, one of my favorites. I absolutely love yeah. Tony. I well, think, I think what that, a great character. And the yes. fact that he does it, like, and then in that moment when at the end, at the end or toward the end of the powwow, when he decides not to go through with it, like he stops and starts walking away. And that, like, that is, it's like you both are like, yeah, he's making this decision, but then it's like the catalyst that starts they'll shoot it you know what mm-hmm. i mean like it's just yeah, all these like really you think he's making the right decision but then that's the thing that leads to like they wouldn't have turned on him like they did octavia yeah right yeah yeah mm-hmm. and well and i mean i think i just love like i reread that whole ending because i think it's so interesting because in some ways tony is not nearly as major of a character as some mm-hmm. of the others who are more they're more interwoven with each other they're we're more wrapped up in their family story and he is outside of all of that, but he is the one at the end that we're seeing and that we're yep. watching that scenario and like that whole, yeah, it'll make me sad, but like that whole part at the end where he's remembering being a kid. I mean, I just think, yeah, uh-huh. yeah it was great. Mm-hmm. I mean, that whole scene. Yeah. That is, that's one of the, that's why I said yeah. it was just really hard. Yeah. To, it's really painful to read. Well, because, and to end there, because I think that's, yeah. that was an interesting choice because mm-hmm. he, Orange could have ended with that door swinging and the idea that we are hoping and reasonably hoping to hear good news from the doctor. And so again, ambiguous, but there's some hope there. And instead we end with the scene with Tony and have to, we have to reconcile that we have to work through that moment and seeing him outside of time i mean i just think like all of that was just really remarkable and this idea that like i mean exactly what like that he is a savior that he does save Mm -hmm. people and that you know he had had that when he was the kid and then it comes back around to that moment i mean man that stuff really was really masterful did you all have the interview with tommy orange after your text my ebook Um, had that he is writing he's writing a follow-up to this book. So oh, interesting. I will I will be reading that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'll be interested to see how he deals with the ambiguity. Yeah. I, I'll be nervous. So I will definitely read it, but I'll be nervous to see what direction he chooses. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So we always also share a quote. Um so Sarah, would you like to share the quote you selected? 
I picked two and the theme of unabridged where we're only supposed to do one, I put two down, but I am going to just read one. <laughs> it's just so hard. I mean, uh-huh. this book was, I mean, I wanted to put like 10 quotes mm-hmm. because I just thought there were so many, I don't know. I did just the way that he, I don't know. I just felt like I was experiencing this like storytelling. I don't know. Just the way that he, was able to turn his phrases mm-hmm. and I, it just, I wanted to, I wanted to highlight and quote everything, but I'm going to talk about a quote from page 163. And the quote is her mom said spiders carry miles of web in their bodies, miles of story, miles of potential home and trap. She said, that is what we are home and trap. This is a quote that Opal ta- is talking about when her mom used to say to her about spiders and there's this this thread about spiders and like these legs and it's kind of like supernatural and I just thought it was really interesting but then this Opal and Jackie's mom basically always told them never to kill spiders and then then she said this quote to them and I just thought it was really interesting and I never thought I mean, I don't really like spiders, but then when I read that, I mean, it just really made you think like, wow, they do. It is like remarkable what they can do. And, and I also thought it was really a poignant uh, quote that in relationship to what Jackie and Opal experienced and the kind of relationship, they, they love their mom, but it was also fraught. I mean, there were things that happened that were horrific and she made choices that were not great for them. And I just, I really, it just really stood out to me when I read it. So that's why I chose it. Yeah, that's a great one. And yeah, I agree about the perspective on spiders and how, and just looking at them in a different way as being an important part of nature and and a really miraculous creature. Jim, what about you? What's your quote? I've got to figure out how much of mine to share because this is one of those that went on for pages, but this is from one of those chapters I was talking about. It's on starts on page 137. This is the thing. If you have the option to not think about or even consider history, whether you learned it right or not, or whether it even deserves consideration, that's how you know you're on board the ship that serves hors d'oeuvres and fluffs your pillows while others are out at sea, swimming or drowning or clinging to little inflatable rafts that they have to take turns keeping inflated, people short of breath who've never even heard of the words hors d'oeuvres or fluff. Then someone from up on the yacht says, It's too bad those people down there are lazy and not as smart and able as we are up here. We who have built these strong, large, stylish boats ourselves. We who float the seven seas like kings. And then someone else on board says something like, but your father gave you this yacht and these are his servants who brought the hors d'oeuvres. At which point that person gets tossed overboard by a group of hired thugs who'd been hired by the father who owned the yacht, hired for the express purpose of removing any and all agitators on the yacht to keep them from making unnecessary waves or even referencing the father or the yacht itself. And it goes on. There's, I could continue reading, but I just think that's one of those that I was talking about where I think he, he helps you understand what it means to have systemic inequality and what it means to judge people based on circumstances that they did not create and that they are just left to contend with the aftermath and to feel as if you have somehow earned this privilege that you were born into, that it wasn't luck, but that it was earned. And yeah, just that whole expression of, 
of how that all works, I think is brilliant. I, yeah, maybe I should have kept reading because I feel like there's more nuance in the way he continues to explain the situation. But I think that gets the point across without me reading the entire book allowed on our podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I, that's just one of those examples where the analogy is so perfect. And you see the way that then that plays into the stories of so many people within the book. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you touched on this at the very beginning, Jen, when you were talking about the terms and how he lists all the different mm -hmm. terms for being Indian or native. I think one of the things I appreciated was, so there's that that's really powerful with the image of the yacht. And, you know, I think all of that was really powerful. But then I, what I also appreciated was the so many of the characters were grappling with whether they were authentic enough or Indian mm -hmm. enough, or did they deserve to call themselves that, you know, some like with blue where she'd been raised by white people and consider, you know, there was that line where it's like, she considers herself white, but it was treated as Brown. And, mm -hmm. and so then, you know, the, the reckon, I mean, I think so much of that is them just like, grappling with what it means to be Indian. And I loved how he explored that starting in the very beginning with the prologue and talking about urban Indians mm -hmm. and all the way through just how individually and collectively there is this struggle to understand not only all the implications of the history, but also whether they have a right to have a place in it. And I just think mm -hmm. that's really, yeah, I just think he explores that really well showing mm -hmm. like how broad that is and how complicated it is. Yeah. Yeah. What's your quote, Ashley? Yeah. So like you all, I, <laughs> I really, I, I did book darts and then I was like, I'm definitely keeping this. So I'm going to write in it. So then I started book darting and writing. So, then, <laughs> so it's funny because I was like, how did I decide when to use the book dart and when to write? I don't know. I don't know, but I marked tons of things. Um, So I really struggled, but I chose this one because yeah, I'll, I'll, let me read it and I'll explain why. So this is from Dean's perspective. And Dean is the filmmaker who was there to record the stories. And I loved that whole, I loved his whole storyline. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is on 239. And this is when he's in the makeshift storytelling booth. It says, but that for Dean is what is so good about the movie. As, and he's talking about two films, Pi and Requiem for a Dream. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about how they both use the Bolex recorder and how that impacted the film. Okay, so that's the context here. But, and then he says how, and I'm, this one also has a curse word about Requiem for a Dream, but he's basically like saying, it's like weird to say that that's your favorite movie because it's so such a messed up movie, but you know, he loves it because, and this is what he says. But for Dean, that is what's so good about the movie. Aesthetically, it's rich, so you enjoy the experience but you don't exactly come away from the film glad that you watched it. And yet you wouldn't have it any other way. Mm -hmm. He believes this kind of realness is something his uncle would have appreciated. This unflinching stare into the void of addiction and depravity. This is the kind of thing only a camera can keep its eye wide open for. And I chose that one because there were a bazillion quotes that I absolutely loved, but I think that's what Tommy Orange does. That's mm -hmm, why yeah. I chose it because I feel like he, to me, this book is that. That he mm -hmm. finds a way to just open wide this ability to examine this situation that is very painful to look at. And yet he finds a way through these characters to look at it and explore it and not simplify and not demean and yet to show all of it. And I, so, mm -hmm. I mean, I picked it because I felt like it was kind of a meta. I mean, I don't know that he uh -huh. would, you know, yeah. as a writer, I don't know if he would 
trust that he could accomplish that in his own work. But to me, he did do that, you know? Mm -hmm. So I picked it just because I felt like I love Dean's story all the way through. And I love that idea of the story having the right to be told. And like, that's enough. Like, we should pay people. I mean, I loved his quote much earlier about that stories are invaluable, but we should pay the storyteller. I mean, I just think like that idea that like people's story and some that that part with Calvin where he's like, sometimes the fact that there's no story is I am paraphrasing here, but you know, he's like, sometimes the fact there's no story is the story. And mm-hmm. I think that whole part gave Orange as the writer a chance to explore the importance of telling the stories. And so, yeah. I just loved it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to move into our... I could talk about We're all this. nodding. We're all I, nodding. I've yeah. talked about this book for a long time. We're going to move into our pairings. And so let's talk about pairings. And Jen, do you want to share yours? Sure. I really struggled with this because there were a lot of books that came into my mind. But I chose one that I read really recently. And I just think these two books echo each other beautifully. This is a Quake Amaze's The Death of Vivek OG. And I just finished that this week. I did this as part of a buddy read with our favorite at Read with Tony. And this is another book that I think is very concerned with identity and both individual identity and identity as a community. And it's another book that looks at a situation in a place from a multitude of perspectives. And that is really using point of view as a way to sort of examine things from all sides. I will say the first sentence in the book, which is also the entirety of the first chapter is they burned down the market on the day Vivek OG died. And from that moment, I was just absolutely absorbed in this book. It is a really short book. It's, it's, one of the shorter books I've read recently, but there is so much depth in the novel. And I think Amaze like Orange is just a brilliant writer. So I think it's another one that you can study both because it's a brilliant story, but also just on the craft level. I want to know like how it's put together, how it works, how it ticks, how, how they put that book together. So I I think it would be a brilliant, I, I would write an essay if I were in school right now. It just, the way that the two books echo each other is kind of mind blowing to me right now. So I I really want you all to read it because I feel like that could be a whole episode of the podcast is just talking about those two books together. Um, But yeah, so that is a Quake Amaze is the death of Vivek OG. Yeah, that one sounds great. I can't wait to read it. I didn't realize the similarities to this, but Sarah, what about you? So my pick is a nonfiction pick. It's Seven Fallen Feathers, Racism, Death, and Hard Truths in a Northern City. It's by Tanya Talaga. And it is a it is an investigative journalistic book about these seven indigenous high school students who died in Ontario in Canada. And basically it's an examination of the you know, the human rights violations against indigenous people and this in Thunder Bay and this community. And it it tells the story of the students. It tells, um, you know, what happened to them. And it really examines, you know, racism, the systemic racism and violations against them. So it is, it's not an easy read, but it is very, 
I mean, I think it goes along with it well because it talks about the, you know, some of the stuff that Tommy Orange brings up in his book. So that is Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talaga. That sounds great, man. That does sound good. Ashley, how about you? What did you pick? So I chose one that it's been quite a while since I read this, but I really love it. So I wanted to share it, even though I'm a little rusty on the details of the book. I wanted to share Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine. And the reason this one stood out to me is she is exploring Native American, the Native American community as well. Um, This is Chippewa families. What really struck me about it is not just that component, which I think is important as far as like, I think she explores a lot of similar issues, but also that it is a lot of different perspectives and then they weave together. So I think that that part is similar in the sense that you explore a lot of different individuals' lives and yet they're woven together. It is It does travel a larger span of time. Although I think Tommy Orange touches on that with some of his characters, like with Jackie and Opal, mm-hmm. how like they're young and there's the thing with Alcatraz and then they're much older. So we do get that in his, but this one spans more of a, of a 50 year period, basically in rural North Dakota. But I just think that she is a phenomenal storyteller. I think her writing is really rich. And I think that similarly, it's examining the threads between us as people and also the way that some of the systemic factors play into individual lives and also play into family lives and family dynamics. So again, that's Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine. And I love it. Yeah, that's good. Okay, to wrap up our discussion about the book, we always end by saying, is it a keeper and personal rating? Uh, Sarah, you want to share? So for me, I will probably, I mean, it is a keeper in that I think it is an excellent book, but I probably will loan it out because I think my mom and my sister would like to read it. So I'll probably loan it out, but I think it is excellent. And then my personal rating is five bookish hearts. Awesome. What about you, Jen? Yeah, definitely a keeper and also five bookish hearts. Sounds good. How about you? <laughs> yeah, I think we agree on this one. <laughs> like I said, I got my pen out, which I really don't do much for anymore. But I was like, I am keeping this book and it is fine. And I don't care if other people read it and have to deal with the markings. I don't care. <laughs> so, so I feel like I was all in. And it's definitely five bookish hearts for me. And just, yeah, I think that he is just telling a story in a way I have not seen it told. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, that was really remarkable as well, that not just is it really well written, but also I just haven't read anything about the indigenous culture in America that really gets at this core of mm-hmm. looking at this connection of all the systemic things and the oppression and then how that plays out for people. And so I loved all of that too. Mm-hmm. So for our Give Me One today, we are going to share a new interest that we have that's kind of developed recently. So I've been really having a hard time remembering how to switch back and forth. It's fine. It's been a long day, folks. Jen, what about you? (laughs) So my new interest is brought about by necessity, but I am doing a lot of thinking about virtual teaching these days. So I am back in the classroom and after having spent a lot of time thinking about how to support other people doing virtual teaching, now I'm having to do it myself. And it is really hard. 
Not that anybody's <laughs> shocked by that, but knowing it and then having to do it are two very different things. So yeah, so that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sarah? Um, I'm trying to decide which one I want to say. I, so I'm going to go with, we got a brand new puppy. <laughs> we, I have put her on Instagram stories, but we have a new puppy. And if you know me in real life, I'm not exactly an animal person. I don't, I mean, I'm not, don't have any ill will, but I just, I'm not a person that is like really into animals, but I mean, I'm definitely into our dog. And so it is like, I feel it's just new because I normally am not like down in like dogs faces and things, but it's kind of like, I'm all, I'm all about it. And she, I just love her to death. So it's been really fun to have her and to have that new interest and experience and having that with my kids and this is their first pet. So it's been really fun and I just love her to death. So that's what mine is. So sweet. She's so sweet. She is very cute. How, how about you, Ashley? So mine, I also have shared a little bit on Instagram. I have really developed a love for indoor plants. And I think I'm just (laughs) surprised by that because like Sarah was not necessarily an animal person. I was not necessarily a plant person. No ill will. However, a lot of plants died on my watch. (laughs) and, And so I think I just sort of felt like it did not, it wasn't something that worked for me. But here in Harrisonburg, we have a really great, local business owner that has just gotten her shop going in the last year. And um, her shop is Indoor Plant Life. And she is just remarkable. Like she shares really great tips about how to take care of plants. And she pots them in a really, you know, so that they're very healthy when they come to you, which I have learned as part of why my my stuff has failed. <laughs> Not to blame other people. I'm sure it was also my fault. But I, ha- I mean, I've realized that that stuff makes a difference as far as when you're purchasing something. And how well you're going to do with it. And then she just gives really specific instructions about how to care for plants. And I've just really enjoyed taking care of them. So it's been an interesting thing to learn that, that, and I mean, I'm sure the fact that we spend more time in our houses now is relevant to my feelings about it, but it, yeah, I've just really loved it. I've found exactly the thing people say about plants that, you know, they make you feel better and they're nice to have in your environment and that it taking care of them can feel really rewarding. So I've been surprised to have that interest, but there you go. Well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. We are so interested to hear what you thought about They're There. So hit us up on social media at Unabridged Pod and let us know your thoughts about that book. We'd love to hear pairings that you have and recommendations you have of books that you've enjoyed that you think are related. And as I said in the beginning, don't forget to check us out on Patreon where we're putting on a lot of extra content and we appreciate your support there. Thanks so much for listening. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod or on the web at unabridgedpod.com for a list of ways to support us. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light, and Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. Unabridged.